Hey, Vance. How are you? Doing good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm hot. It's hot outside. So I was just re-watching the Sound on Sound video you did, the recording of Band, and I wanted to ask you a bit more in depth about some stuff from that. Um, cause I was just telling you before mm-hmm. that I do a lot of my recording in kind of one big room, and in that video you were... You said you just recorded the band all in the same room, kind of amps blaring. Is that something that you mm-hmm. do a lot? Uh, yeah, more than I think more than a lot of people in Nashville do. Um, you know, a lot of the studios in Nashville when they were built, you know, back in the golden days of Nashville, they they were all everybody was isolated, everybody was in booths, and that kind of came about in the '80s. But before that, like the classic Nashville studios were all in one room. Everybody kind of playing in one room, playing kind of quiet. Of course, it's country music. It doesn't need to be loud. Um, but, um, you know, even like great rock records, like I, I've seen shots of Van Halen 1, you know, they they basically just set up drums and amps all in the same room and they played and that was the record, you know. So um, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge fan of isolation. Um, uh, I kind of like it when the, there's, you know, drums and the guitars, although usually there's very little drums and guitars, but... Sometimes there's some drums and or you know guitars in the room mic. That's all stuff that kind of you know locks the sound of the of the record together. And and a lot of times these days, you know, there's kind of two thoughts and theories. There's the you know everything. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to quote Radiohead, but everything in its right place. You know, like like everything is in its own space. Do you know what I mean by that recording style? Yeah. You know, uh, the drums are very. The drums sound like drums in a room, but they don't sound like any, like the guitars don't sound like they're in that room. The guitars sound really close, which I like that sound. Don't get me wrong. I like that sound. Um, but what happens is these days is that a lot of times those, all those guitars are done as overdubs. And so you get this kind of sterile, perfect, sort of boring thing. And there's some, some real awesome joy in having you know, sounds bleeding into each other because they tend to make the sound of the record, you know? So, so I, I really like that. That was, that was cut. Um, we did drums in the kind of the center of my room. We had a small electric guitar amp on one side, a little Princeton on one side, and then a little Marshall combo, single 12 combo on the other side. And then the bass rig actually was in another room because the bass rig tends to make the snares rattle. And so we kind of, I put the bass amp in another room and, um, and then we just had the door open a little bit so that a little of that bass kind of could bleed into the room, but there's not a lot in the room, just a little bit. And in that video, you were talking about um, a Glenn Johns thing where he would put the amps either side of the drums with battles between. Yeah. Could you go into a mm-hmm. bit more depth about that and, yeah, I mean, it's it's in his book. Um, it's actually funny. I, I read his book, which I think is called Sound Man, I think. And um, he talks about lining all the guitar amps up with the front of the kick drum. And that that's how he, you know, dealt these classic sort of Stones and Who and all these records. And it totally makes sense. It, it's a, it makes a sort of a unified acoustic front going out into the room. You know, the, the, the guitar amp isn't on the other side of the room from, say, the kick drum. And so any bleed that happens between those two things, like if the guitar amp is facing the drums, it would be, you know, there'd be more isolation, but it's not going to be quite in time. Whereas if they're all in the same line, 
you'd think the players would sort of be, you know, the sound coming out the amp would be a little more coherent with the drums. So whether, you know, whether it is all those things are correct or not, um, it works out really well for me, especially when you have um, a pretty good sized room. Uh, if the room is pretty good size and you've got a band that's two guitars, bass and drums, it re- really, really works really well. Do you use figure eight mics doing that as well to kind of um, block out the things beside them? No. I mean, not on anything that doesn't require a figure of eight. You know what I mean? I, I often use a figure of eight for overheads because I like the sound of the, of, the, of the drums underneath them and I like the sound of the drums above them, if you know what I'm saying. You know, I like the sound of it going off the room, the roof up above, the, all that. Uh, I use a, a AA RD8 often, and uh, I'll use that for uh, overheads or uh, coals or something like that. Unless I'm going to tape, and if I'm going to tape, then I'll probably end up using uh, U67s. I want you to ask you a bit more about some of your drum recording techniques too. Um, have you got any mm-hmm. other favorite mics for different positions on the drum kit? Uh, really, I'm kind of uh, relatively boring uh, in some ways. I do like the sound of large diaphragm condensers on the toms. I know that's kind of weird. And I also like the sound of certain ribbons on toms. Uh, I've got a couple of AEA R92s. I uh, use those uh, quite often. Uh, they kind of they kind of slide in and out of my um, uh, my thought process. Sometimes I'll, I'll use them all the time, and then other times I, I won't use them at all for a year. So, um, but uh, I, I like U87s. Um, I like uh, C500s. Um, that's a Sony mic. Uh, C37s are really great. C38 is a new favorite snare drum mic of mine. Um, top snare. Uh, but normally I'm like 57s top and bottom, or the bottom may be a 545, which is a Unidyne. It's a, it's a, like a 57 without a transformer. It's a lower output. I like that a lot on the bottom. Uh, I have a Cam 84 that I use. It's a really old one with a Tuchel connector on it. Uh, I use that on hi-hat. Uh, it just one of the weirdest mics. It has more low end than any of my FET 47s or or any of those. It just for some reason has all this great low end, and uh, but it won't take a kick drum. The capsule will clip, so but it works out really great for hi hat. It's too it's too has too much gain for a snare, but it's great for hi hat because it'll actually pick up kind of that low rattly stuff, you know, in the in the hi hat. I personally hate the hi hat, but I love that microphone on it. Um, uh, floor tom, I usually do a top and a bottom. So I may do like a C500 on top and like a 421 on the bottom. Um, the floor tom is kind of really the only tom to me that really needs the bottom head to be a part of the recording. So I'll do that. Kick drum, I, I have three or four standbys. I have, a, I have a great old D12. It's an old Echolet D12, which is a you know German company rebadged it. And then I have FET 47, which is really good. Uh, I have a um, Chandler Red mic. That's a relatively new mic. That's a large diaphragm condenser, tube condenser. And then I have this new uh, uh, Chandler TG mic. And that is really awesome, especially for the price. 
Um, I think there's 1900 bucks or something like that. And it beats my FET all the time. It's really, really great. It's got some cool um, gain structure and EQ settings. It's, it's really nice. Uh, and then I have this, um, and I use, again, I use R88 a lot of time on overheads. I'll use Coles on overheads or U67s, it just depends. Um, and lastly, I've got this little microphone. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's about the most American mic I have. It's an Ampex um, 101, I think is what it's called. And it's, um, it's, I don't know if it's a condenser. I, I know it's not a condenser. It's a, it's a dynamic, but I don't know actually if it's omni or directional. It's kind of omni, and it's kind of directional. I know that sounds weird. Um, it's weird looking. It's a little. It looks like a like you're. It looks like you're using your finger and and it's broken. It's a weird little angled thing, and it has a quarter inch connector on it. And I use that into a DI, and I put it right over the rim of the floor of the kick drum, right at the bottom of the snare. So basically kind of pointing at the, the knee or kind of kind of pointing at the crotch of the drummer. And then I will bring that into the console and I'll use a couple pedals on it. And uh, it kind of gets this really cool, super crunchy, echoey, distorted thing that I really like. And on that sound on sound, I, I talk about that a little bit I, and I show it. Also, if you're, if you're interested in more of that, um, I'm on a site called puremix.net. I'm one of the mentors, and I have a I have a three hour video instructional uh, with the same band, not the same song, but the same band. Everything from from how I set the kit drum all the way up to comping and doing vocals and mix and the mix. It's pretty awesome. It's like I said, it's it's over three hours. So if you want to check that out, make sure I post a, put a link to that in the description. Yeah, puremix.net. Um, so also in that also in that video, I know you're recording without headphones, but you're also you said you it was the song was along to a click. How were you managing to do it without headphones, but still with a click? The the drummer had a set of Apple earbuds, and he just put them in his ears, and then we used we put a little bit of the click in that, and the click probably on that song was a was probably a shaker or something. You know what I mean? It wasn't like boop boop. It was more of a. Chuk, chuk, is that something that, that you um, do a lot of recording without headphones? Uh, when we can, it's great. People love it. Uh, but a lot of times, we, we tried to do that. I did a Stray Cats record earlier this year, or a, well, late last year. And uh, I, we tried to do it with them, and they got through one song and were like, now we need headphones. I was like, all right, cool. Put them on. I set it up. Here you go. <laughs> but they wanted to do it without headphones kind of like on stage but i think on stage they're used to floor monitors and wedges and you know all that stuff so but sometimes you can, sometimes you can get away with it we did on that record um and i have on a couple other records but you know most of the time people want headphones do you don't normally do it with sort of ear level um pa speakers then uh no nothing like that or is it like floor wedges or no no usually they're just hearing their amp in the room every now and then floor wedges every now and then there's a couple videos online 
uh, I did four. Uh, well, we did we did six, but they only put four up online, or maybe three. Uh, of an artist uh, was up for the Grammy. He's actually won one this year called Bra- uh, Brandy Carlisle. And there's some live videos we did from RCA Studio A, and she did all of those without uh, headphones. They all just played live, and we had string players, and it was actually really cool. It was a it was a really nice experiment in volume, you know, and having enough space to spread the band out. That you know, but it was all done live. The whole record, the whole the whole all the video, everything was done live. So it's pretty impressive, and that's on YouTube. I'm sure you can find yeah, I'll that. Yeah, post a link that too. <laughs> yeah, it's like Brandy Carlisle live from Studio A. There's a, I think uh, there's a song called The Joke. There's a song called Sugar Tooth. And then there's one other, and I can't remember what it is right now. How are the singers monitoring their own vocals then if you're not doing it with any PA equipment? Well, on, on that record, they just were loud enough they could hear themselves. Like, in other words, the, ba- the band wasn't so loud. Now, on the, the video you're talking about, Sound on Sound, Tyler didn't sing. So, yeah, he wasn't singing when we cut it. They were so well rehearsed, he didn't need to be singing it. Do you use PA equipment then if you are doing live tracking? I do have a couple little turbo sound wedges uh, that um, I, to be honest with you, we haven't yet really used them for monitoring. I've just used them for uh, like talk back, talk back. I have this hallway, like talk back in a hallway or, or like we've used them as studio monitors, like studio play, you know, playback monitors. But then I got new ones. I got new monitors, so I don't really use them for that. But I, I don't really use those very much. I mean, every now and then, somebody's going to want that. But, you know, the more of that sound you put in the room, you know, the more of it's in the room. So sometimes it, that works out really well. Now, I've never used PA equipment with him. But uh, back uh, when I was working with Jack White, like on Blunderbuss and some of Lanzaretto and the Dead Weather, we would set up um, usually three microphones, um, basically all side by side. One of those microphones would go to an amplifier in the room, and he could have some pedals. So, like, he had some distortion. Now, the amp wasn't very loud, but he had some you know, echo or distortion, and that amp was mic'd. And then he would either switch out between an RCA 77 or a FET 40 or a, or a Tube 47. And oftentimes I would just, he'd just move the 47 to the side, like at 45. I would leave that on to just pick up the room. And that would be all the effects for the whole song. We wouldn't do any effects in post, like in mix. We'd just use that tracking vocal sound for the record. (coughs) I love doing stuff like that. Right. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about working with Jack White. Kind of blend, obviously he's quite well known for using kind of lo-fi um, and kind of distorted uh, things as part of his music. Do you have any techniques for blending that with a sort of modern hi-fi type recording? You know, it's funny. A lot of people say that Jack Steph's lo-fi. It's definitely not. He he doesn't try to do that. I mean, I mean, you know, we're doing two-inch, eight-track tape at seven and a half inches per second. There's nothing lo-fi about that. There's something that it's not 96K digital you know what i mean so i mean it's different from that um i think the thing for him is uh, it doesn't matter he, he doesn't ever sort of think about things like lo-fi hi-fi or or anything like that any sort of aesthetic other than is this what serves the song 
is this what I want this to sound like? Do you know what I mean? This new Tours record we did is a completely different sounding record than anything Jack's done in a long time. And part of the reason is they cut the record on 8-track, but then they all had, like, you know, there was guitars that needed to be recorded, and there were more vocals that needed to be recorded. And so it, it, it was recorded. Now, I didn't record it. My old assistant, Josh Smith, did, and he did a great job. He recorded it, and then they transferred it um, into Pro Tools on a with a Burl converters, nine six twenty four, and then they did a ton of overdubs, and so and then um, we mixed it at my place on my SSL, and uh, you know it was a totally different path from what Jack normally does, but you know what we all had a good time, and and it wasn't uh, you know. Again, I've, I've never seen Jack try to do anything that wasn't what he wanted to do. If you know what I mean. I know um, for his solo work, a lot of the times he uses a few different bands on stage. Is that something that he does in the studio as well? Well, for Blunderbuss, almost all of Blunderbuss was the same band, which the core of that band was the female band on that Blunderbuss tour, but not completely. So, like, Daru Jones played on some of Blunderbuss. Um, and so I think the idea of having two bands in, tr- in sort of, um, uh, like, like the audience not know what they were getting themselves into, sort of, every night, was an interesting idea. I mean, it was really expensive for him, to be honest with you, was, you know, paying two bands every night. Um, and the band didn't know whether they were playing that night or not until about one in the afternoon. So, so, and the other thing was he kept them separate when rehearsing. So, so even though they were all played the same songs, they played them differently. Do you know what I mean? So it was, it was really interesting to hear how different it was. Um, but, uh, you know, lately, I mean, I think his last recording, which I didn't have anything to do. I, I think he used a bunch of guys, uh, both in LA, some dudes in LA and some, some guys in New York, they recorded a whole bunch of tracks and then, I, I believe they kind of uh, compiled them together from multiple takes in multiple places. So it's a really, you know, it's a pretty different sounding record. Moving on um, or continuing on talking about some of the live stuff. I know that you used to, you started out as a kind of front of house engineer. Did that affect? I sort of did both, right. but yeah, I, I had a, I, I had a 20 year long career as a front of house engineer. So yeah. Did that affect how you approach recording very much? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm, uh, I get sounds really fast. It's not something I, I it's not the something I'd say I don't labor over. I do. But I mean, the idea, I mean, I've heard of people taking, you know, a week to get a snare drum sound. That's never going to happen with me ever. It's just, it's a snare drum. Let's move on. Let's work on the song, you know? So, uh, the part of the reason why I think I lasted so long working for Jack is that I was fast. I also don't have any I don't have any desire to ever tell people you can't do that because, you know, nowadays you can do it. It's just what is, what is it going to take to do it? Do you know what I mean? Uh, the second Dead Weather record is probably the most complicated record I ever did because of the technical limitations of, of what we were recording on. We had two eight-track machines that one ran at 15 ips per second, one ran at seven and a half. The seven and a half had a had a Mark One eight track head, the 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 fifteen had a Mark Two head, and the two tapes were completely un. It was impossible to um, 
to, to swap between them. So there was all kinds of really complicated ways of recording where we may have something on the second tape that needs to be on the first tape uh, in a different place. And so it's a lot of like time code offsets and all a lot of stuff that Pro Tools we could just done super easy, copy, paste, done. But that wasn't how we were doing it. So, you know, um, all those things, like if you don't know how hard they are to do, you know, you just jump into them and start doing them. And then, you know, somebody and then later you go, man, I'm not ever doing that again. You know what I mean? So uh, I just didn't I just I never had any desire to tell Jack or any other client, no, I can't do that. And that's because that comes from life sound. You know, our job is to take you know, two tons of stuff, pack it into this tiny room or arena or club or, or bar or, you know, arena or stadium or whatever it is we got to do, put on a show, you know, set it up, put on a great show, tear it all down, get in the truck and then go to the next place. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a different mindset for making records, but it's a good mindset if you just are thinking about being like task based and, um, and the goal is always, you know, the you know the show is the goal, and in records the performance is the goal, you know. So it's kind of the same in a slightly different way, but but definitely it, it informed my my uh, my decision making. The other thing is, I mean, I was working um, when I came off the road. Uh, the band that I was mixing, you know, was about fifty inputs from the stage. And it was pretty common for us to go into a festival where there was no sound check. And so I've got a 50 input band from the stage and I basically got one song to get the mix together. And so, you know, when you kind of go down that path, um, you figure it out pretty fast, how to go fast. Do you think doing live sound also influenced you in terms of your preference for doing, um, doing as many live takes as possible? I would say that I would say that uh, n- no, not really. They're, they're both they're they're it, it's more, it's a little more of a, of a thing like like a perfect example of this is on that record, the record that that sound and sounds from that Tyler Bryant record. There was a song on that record that there was no way it could be anything but a production piece. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, like I could get the band to play it, but it wasn't going to happen. It just, it wasn't going to happen the same feel, right? So the drummer and I, uh, I set up a, a, a like a drum machine click track sort of vibe, right? And the drummer and I spent half a day while Tyler and the rest of the band, um, uh, and this is the truth, sat on the front porch eating fiery Cheetos and drinking beer <laughs> and uh and we just set up this this basically eight or nine different loop pieces and then we chopped it together based on a demo that tyler had done on acoustic guitar so we chopped this drum part up where it felt right with the demo then we got tyler in and uh we got the bass player in and the bass player and Tyler played a pass on, uh, I think he played 12 string. And then we sort of started putting guitars and keyboards. And then I played this uh, Saruti box. It's a drone 
that's just the song is in D. The whole song is in D. And so part of the joy of the song was that we wanted to do um, a little bit of um, the word. You know what the word is? It's a Beatles song. It's a song where they tried to do the whole song in one note, in one key. You know, so um, we did the whole thing in, in D. And then we just made the bass and the guitars play sort of the harmonies around the this D chord that just runs through the whole song this drony D thing. And uh, it's really cool. Um, you know, it came out. The funny thing was Tyler hated it at first. And now it's like his favorite song on the record. So, you know, and it doesn't, I mean, it has a cool little solo piece, but all the whole track was made by us playing these drum parts live and then cutting it into a, a live played loop existence. Do you know what I mean? Instead of just putting a bunch of beats and things on a machine and putting them on the grid, you know what I mean? It sounds like a kind of um, so, Tomorrow Never Knows type thing as well. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a loop. So that's a bunch of loops. The dr- are the drums a loop Obviously. as well? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Drums, bass. Yep. And the drums were played by uh, Paul. On Tomorrow Never Knows? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I believe they are. I didn't. I didn't know it was a um, loop. I presumed it was them playing all the way through. It's a loop. No, no, no. If you listen to it, it's a loop. The boom, 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 boom. That's the right. loop. The bass sound on that is amazing as well. I never really hear people talk about it. It's mm. so heavy compared to all the yep. other stuff at the time. Is it cool? Have you read the recording the Beatles book? No, I, I've, I've been trying to find it, but I, it's really difficult to. Yeah. It's, yeah. If, uh, it's yeah. Well, you know, you can find them out there. There's a couple hundred bucks now. People do have some for sale, but uh, you know, it's out of print at the moment. Uh, there's some interesting stuff. You know, Paul Paul would often not record bass in that period of time. You know, Revolver and River Soul. He wouldn't record the bass with the band. He'd play guitar or piano, and then he'd put the bass on later because that would give him a whole track of bass. And so part of that is him wanting to the bass to have a bigger picture but also it allowed him to sort of track the band track playing something else you know what i mean so it's pretty cool if it's all right with you i'd like to go through some instruments maybe talk about your approaches to recording them kind of in general um let's do it we've already been through drums so maybe electric guitar you got any favorite kind of mics or techniques that you'll go to i am i am like the i am like the electric guitar um, I mean, if I, I have a U67 and a 57, I can record every guitar on every record. If I have um, a, like a BK5, which is an old ribbon, and a 57, that's a great sound too. Um, our uh, AEAR92 and a 57, great sound. Uh, our one, uh, 121, Royer 121 or a 122, depending on either one's fine. And a, and a 57 is a great sound. And I usually always record both tracks, partially because um, I'll EQ them slightly different, if at all. Um, I'll do both of those to a pair of 1073s, straight to tape, done. Sometimes with a little EQ, sometimes without. And the great thing is uh, I put them, the great thing is when you put them together in mono, they make a great electric guitar sound. When you pan them, they make a really nice faux stereo sound because 
the EQ is different. You know what I mean? And there, and the way the tra- way each microphone, the transfer curve of each microphone. Um, but uh, I will put I put them. It's hard, a little hard to describe, but you know, if if a speaker is a bullseye, right? Yeah. Uh, I will go all the way to the far edge. Like if you know, if you know, if you play darts, right? So you know where the doubles are out on the outside. Yeah. I'll go just in in the center of the cone, but just in from the outside. I'll put one mic, uh, one mic there, and one mic right below it. So they're exactly in line, but right there on the edge of the cone, not on the spider of the cone, but on the paper, the the conical part of the cone. And uh, and that's basically my electric guitar technique: a pair of ten seventy threes, or a pair of APIs. I don't use those a lot, but sometimes. Um, I'll tell you what I really love is uh, Eric Valentine's the UTIs. Those are really great sounding mic pre's too. I also have a bunch of um, Cappy mic pre's, which is a guy here in the states who builds kits or he sells kits. They're amazing. Uh, but usually 1073s is what I'll I'll go for. That's my go-to. And uh, straight to tape, no compression, very little EQ, if any at all. Right on the grill. Do you have any phase problems ever with them being in slightly different places? Nope. No, because because you put them you put them so that the capsules are in line. You try to get them as close as possible, but they they will they will almost null out if you if you flip phase. Are they facing just straight forward rather than towards the center? Straightforward. Nope. Straightforward. I guess moving on to bass. Um, do you have a similar technique like right up to the grill? Or? Uh, normally, what I'll do with the bass is I'll use something like a like a forty seven, or I use my red a lot, my Chandler red. Uh, I also have a Peluso twenty two forty seven. I think it's the LE version. It's the one with the metal tube, whatever one that is. Um, so uh, I've got a couple different DIs I really love. There's there's a guy who built a DI, and it's called <laughs> Neil Before Zod, which is pretty funny. Um, I really like that a lot. I have a Wolf Box, which is an Acme product. I use that all the time. It's either one of those two is my DI. Uh, also, Universal Audio makes – or not Universal Audio. Uh, Rupert Neve Designs makes a really nice DI. Um, all, any one of those three, really. As uh, my DI, I try to get the DI before any pedals. So, uh, as a matter of fact, often I try to get the DI even before the tuner. So I literally like it is just straight out of the bass. Um, and then I we go through whatever pedals the bass player has, <coughs> and then to my B15, my Ampeg B15, and then I just mic it uh, like I said either with that Peluso. Um, sometimes a FET 47, sometimes a U 47, if I have one, if the studio has one, call me a Blackbird, um, or, um, the Chandler, the red. And that's kind of it. A uh, little bit of compression on the DI, but no compression on the bass, on the amp. Do you normally time adjust the two to get them in phase? And after, after we record, I do. I use the little labs. Uh, IBP, and usually I'm using the one in the Universal Audio package. It's fantastic. It's amazing how many records come to me that the bass is out of phase. 
but the bass being out of phase isn't always wrong. Like sometimes, sometimes that combination of the bass amp and the bass DI together creates a really cool low frequency solid bass and sort of cancels out a little bit of the upper mids because you know depending on how far out of phase it is so you know sometimes that's really good uh you have to kind of you know dink around with it a little bit um on you know your your you know whatever speakers you really like and just try to get it to where the low end is the most solid and then sometimes you find you get the low end really solid and now like that 800 you know the picky part of the of the bass is kind of gone, and so you're like, well, okay, I gotta, you know, let me you know, move it around just until it sounds best. There's no hard and fast, you know, and, and you can slide the whole track, but often sliding the whole track, um, like sliding the 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 amp back to the DI, um, sometimes you kind of it kind of doesn't. It's not as cool as the the IBP. The IBP has has delay and and phase, so sometimes it's just a little bit of time delay, a couple of milliseconds, and sometimes it's phase. So, I guess moving on to acoustic guitar, do you have any favorite mics or techniques for that? Absolutely, um, I do acoustic guitar. Um, like with Chris Stapleton, I will use a um, old Gefell five eighty two, which is a really cool uh east german microphone um cardioid and then i will use either a u67 or a 77 ribbon and the best way to describe this is that i will set up a little v shape uh the 582 kind of points at the where the neck and body come together and the 77 or 67 points at the hole and they create a 90 degree angle you know what I mean? To each other. And then um, I basically ran those uh, to a pair of preamps. I usually, for in my studio, I use um, these RCA Mac Pre's that I have, uh, BA-11s. But to be honest with you, you know, any really nice, you know, Mac Pre will work. Um, the Rupert Neve guys, the, the Shelford channel is really nice. Um, and maybe a little bit of EQ. And then I go to an Empirical Labs Fatso Junior, and that's kind of the that's the super that's the that's the ticket for me. Uh, it's great because you can use the warmth control to kind of control the pick attack, but yet still get a lot of nice body and, and a really solid stereo image out of it. Or you can pan them together and they sound great in mono. I start in mono and then I'll pan them around a little bit to get it to sound the way I want. Do you have any techniques for recording a singer at the same time as um, an acoustic guitar? Yeah. And well, I, what I'll do is at that point, I will literally set up the, you know, a triangle. Uh, I will make it so that the vocal mic to the acoustic mic to the other acoustic mic back to the vocal mic, they're all an equilateral triangle. And they're all exactly on the same plane. Do you know what I mean? So if the singer has to lean in a little bit or he has to come back a little bit for the acoustic guitar, you know, that's he just has to do that. But Chris is really great. Chris plays guitar and sings, and his voice is so big and nice that this works really without any – I mean, there's really no phase canceling. A little bit of his voice ends up in the 582. A little bit of it ends up in the 77 or the 67. And, you know, if those are hard panned, 
it just it kind of works. I know that sounds weird, but it works. Uh, there's a couple uh, tracks that I would say you could check out. Um, one of them is, is a song that's on the very last record of his, the Volume 2 record. It's called Scarecrow. That's a really, really good example of that technique. Great. I'll, um, I'll post some links to those as well in the description. Yeah. Um, I guess moving naturally onto vocals, do you have favorite mm -hmm. um, mics, preamps? I know you talked about the SM7 before. Yep. I've used SM7 a lot. You know, it's not my favorite mic, but it's not my least favorite mic. I mean, I've, I've used everything from a, a handheld 58. You know, sometimes that's the, sometimes if you have a really dynamic performer, that's an artist, singer, performer, you know, 58's the thing to go, man. Put them in the middle of the room out there, you know, uh, crank up the studio monitors and let them just wail away, you know. Um, but SM7 is a pretty good mic. I, you know, they're, they're so low level. Um, you usually have to use, I usually just put a preamp out on the floor with them, you know, like um, some sort of little, you know, some sort of preamp out on the floor. Um, and then I'll use uh, either my 1073. Uh, and then after that, I've got this uh, Chandler RS124. It's really been loving it on vocals lately. So I'll use that. If I'm in another studio, sometimes if they have a Fairchild, like a Blackbird, I'll use a Fairchild. Um, I also have a uh, Retro 165, and that's really great. And I have a Retro Stay Level, and it's really good. They're all just kind of depends on the singer. Uh, but the other thing I've been using a lot, a lot lately, is my Red, the Chandler Red. And I just take the red and put it straight into the 124, straight to tape, no EQ. And it is, it's just fantastic. Um, I guess to finish off, I wanted to ask a bit about how you use the master bus. Um, for you, do you use a lot of stuff on it or no stuff at all? Nope. I use the API 2500. I also use, a, I have a Mog EQ4, and that's a relatively new purchase for me. Um, I used to have an old EQ3D, which was... Um, uh, that was Night Pro. It was Mog before Mog was Mog. Um, and uh, uh, but now uh, uh, Cliff Mog designed this EQ4, and it's great. It's all stepped, detented pots, so it's great and easy to recall. And I just put that after the 2500 in my in my bus, and uh, that's all I need. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I think that's all my questions. Yeah. No problem. No problem. Uh, have a good one and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing some of your work in the future.